Well, hello and welcome to episode 26 of Yes OBS. I am Anthony Evanson, known as VoiceOver Tony, with my very good friend... Paul Anthony Jones. And it's a very special episode today because we're recording remotely. Mm, so we're, for the we're not, first time ever. We record these episodes, we're a few weeks behind world current events. So the whole COVID-19 virus issue, we've kind mm. of just just hit the UK's lockdown. Mm-hmm. So we're both sitting at home with nothing to do but record Yes or BS episodes. I'm not sitting opposite you, we're getting your poker face. <laughs> I was <just> thinking, <laughs> not that the poker face ever makes any difference to any of no, the facts. No, that's true. Yeah, that is true. I think true. literally every time I say, oh, you're, you're smiling or you've got a funny face on you, it's, I, I get the answer wrong anyway. <laughs> it's because I've just got a funny face all the time. <laughs> that's, it was nothing to do with the facts. It was just, <laughs> oh, haven't you got a funny face? <laughs> It's just a comment on my appearance. <laughs> so apologies, everyone, if the sound quality isn't up to the usual. Not that we've got amazing sound quality anyway. This being we, like we a, try our best for uh, for amateurs, I think. We're a bit of a threadbare podcast here, mm. but <laughs> we'll hopefully, hopefully get through it and we'll get some good facts for you today. Yeah, um, what, what, uh, what subjects are you covering? Uh, I'm going way off grid today. I'm like, oh, Lord. I'm touching on the very nature of consciousness itself. these are grand 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 promises you're setting up here i think it's being locked away in quarantine i've thought i've started to think these grand grand sort of thoughts maybe i don't know oh no see it you you have like a sort of crisis slash breakdown every time we record this so you've you've been left to your own devices for two weeks god knows what you've written down i'm sitting i'm sitting here i haven't showered for weeks Beard unkempt. See, now I'm glad I'm not in the same room as you. <laughs> but that's no different to usual. Oh, joke I just made. Uh, oh, did you? Oh, right. Anyway. Must, have been, must have been some lag in the recording. I missed that joke. <laughs> but, uh... some, some lag somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> right. Without further ado, then, okay. I'm going to launch into my very first fact. Right. And it's going to be about dreams and the nature of dreaming. But go- okay, keep it light. <laughs> but no, it will get it. It's going to get light because okay. the fact is all about can artificial intelligence dream? Oh, I, 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 wait until you hear what my facts are about today. <laughs> I, we could not be at more polar and opposite. I am switching this to a philosophy podcast. Uh, but, yeah, um, you see, you're, you're talking about like can artificial <clears throat> intelligence dream, and I'm like, here's some facts about cereal boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, anyway. Can't say we're not eclectic, at least. Yeah, true. So I want to kick off with some just general facts about dreaming at the minute. Mm -hmm. Um, So did you know that when you're in rapid eye movement sleep, your brain actually paralyzes you? It's to kind of a way to stop you acting out your dreams in reality. So for sleepwalkers, that kind of malfunctions. Ah, right. Oh, that's That's, interesting. And it's also where the terrifying sleep paralysis phenomenon comes from as well. That's also... Ah, right. So your brain has paralysed the body to stop you acting out your dreams, but there's been a bit of a misfire and you've woken up and then you think, oh God, there's a terrifying presence in the room. Ah, right. You've heard about that sleep paralysis. It's sort of where you're conscious, but you can't move because your body's still sort of half dreaming or something. Yes, you feel an evil presence in the room with you. That's uh, how I feel every time I usually record this with you. (laughs) How many of these jokes can we get into this episode? (laughs) 
but I used to sleepwalk a lot when I was a kid. Uh, oh yeah, you did. Yeah, I yeah, remember this, these stories. So it obviously had a. It ha- I obviously had a massive malfunction in my own paralysis side of the brain that should <laughs> should have paralysed me into sleep. But there was some. Apparently, I ran into my parents' room and yelled, um, "Women and children first! The ship's sinking!" And then, like, <laughs> I kicked. I kicked, like, I kicked open their bedroom door and just yelled at them, and then <laughs> ran out again. Uh, there was. There was a time my brother woke up and just saw a dark shadow sitting at his desk, and that was me just rocking back and forth. So. <laughs> Your poor <laughs> so, brother. Like. I know. Uh. So, but no one's actually quite sure exactly what causes people to act out their dreams. But the parts of the brain that are related to c- complex behaviours are awake. So, like, mm. you you can drive a car. Some people have been known to. Uh, they can get up and start cooking or have really? mumbled conf- yeah, that part of the brain is switched on for some reason, but conscious oh, wow. decision making isn't. Sort of like the whole debate on what is consciousness then anyway. Thoughts. Oh, here we go. <laughs> no, I'm not, it's not yet, it's not yet. But some other quick facts for you. Um, some dreams are universal across all cultures. For example, being chased, uh, falling, uh, being naked in public as well. But oh, that's, wow. that's just a, a general dream of mine to do. <laughs> Closet exhibitionist. What about the dream that I had last night, which was uh, Mary Berry asked me to find her an earbud. And uh, when I picked it up, I dropped it into some long grass and she was waiting for it and getting more and more angry and I couldn't find it. And it was getting like deeper and deeper into the grass. Holy hell, Paul. That's it. That's it. That's Does that happen across cultures? I don't think so. I think we need a whole new Freudian episode to analyse that one. <laughs> Jesus. Don't know what's going on in there. It's interesting you mentioned Mary Berry because apparently... <laughs> she guessed next week. <laughs> no, apparently we can't make up faces in our dreams. Every face we see is somebody else's face that we've seen in real life. Oh, I've heard something about this before. There's another one where you can't tell the time as well. So every if you look at a clock in your dream and mm. then look away and then look back at the clock, it'll be on a completely different time and you won't be able to know what time it is. It probably comes from being a writer, but the number of times I've dreamt that I'm either writing something or I'm reading something that in my dream I've written and I'm taking in every single word of it and it's the best thing ever and i'll wake up mm. and go oh, my god that story i wrote was amazing and i'll start like instantly trying to write it down or instantly trying to remember it and then i'll go oh no it was terrible it made no sense <laughs> is that the excuse you give your publisher for that <laughs> <laughs> publisher agent PR, yeah <laughs> it would have been every it time it would have been great if i remembered the dream <laughs> yes it's also interesting you mentioned that as well paul because oh. one of the One of the theories on why we dream, it's scientists believe it might be a way for the brain to process complex emotions or ideas in a safe environment. So you could be dreaming about writing the perfect book. You could be throwing out all your craziest, best ideas Mm. that in real life you might be too nervous to try out maybe so your brain's kind of giving them a go it's trying things out it's trying to get its head around things all right okay another theory though is it's kind of like it's a fight or flight training so that's why you dream about you dream about more negative things than you do positive things in like trying to find mary berry's earbud (laughs) yeah or completely crazy and neutral things i don't know i don't even even know what that is but uh, she she was very angry that i couldn't find her earbuds i'm not surprised (laughs) anyway So we're moving on to my actual fact about dreams now. Right. So up until this point, it's all been completely true. Okay. So my fact is that Google itself can dream. (laughs) 
Okay. Now, there's a lot of science behind this, so... By science, do you mean you've watched iRobot recently? <laughs> the basics of it are, we're talking about artificial neural networks. Oh, Lord, right, okay. Brace yourselves. Now, I'm not going to go into the full science behind it, because I don't Good. fully understand Because I don't fully understand it. <laughs> you surprise me, really? <laughs> but they're loosely based on neural networks that constitute animal brains. And specifically, the systems where you learn and perform new tasks. Okay. So are you with me so far? Not really, but keep going. Don't worry, I've got an example. Okay, So basically, right. Google will use one of these networks and it'll say, right, this is, this is a picture of a cat. Go look for more pictures of cats. And then it, they scan thousands of images into it. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of picks out what it thinks looks like a cat. Sometimes mm-hmm. gets it wrong, sometimes gets it right. But the more input they get from the users to say, yes, you got that one right, you got that one right, it starts to learn. And then it starts to be able to do it itself by recognizing pictures of cats. So now are you with me so far, Paul? I think so. Basically, Google scans lots and lots of images. And the more times that it learns that it's got it wrong or right, the, mm. the better it becomes at that process. Yes, Right, okay. So this is where we get to the AI is now becoming so advanced, it's starting to dream and come up with its own crazy, trippy images. So how the engineers got it to dream was basically, instead of feeding it pictures, they fed it images of white noise and said, in this image, there is a cat. Please go and find the cat. But obviously, there's no picture of a cat in there. So what the image technology started to do was create these weird warped images of cats. And it was doing this all by itself. Like it wasn't getting any input. They just said, go find the cats or go find the dogs. And one of them, they said, please find the dumbbells in this picture. But because the Google image technology has recognized dumbbells as being attached to somebody's hand, it it started to grow these disembodied arms holding dumbbells. But in like a horrible, nightmarish horror. That was Where? like a night. Oh, it was just on a on a computer screen. Oh right, okay. Like so, it, the Google started growing disembodied hands. That, that... No, no, sorry, I should have explained that. It was producing images on a screen. Right. And these okay. image these images were the dreams of Google. Oh right, okay. Based on white noise or blank images, it was starting to produce nightmares and crazy acid trip sort of things. So where was it getting, like, was it getting it from its own library? Yes, getting it from its own memory or its own brain, if you will. Because that, that's what Google had learned. Ah, this is what a dog looks like. There, mm-hmm. there must be a dog in this image somewhere because I've been told there is. And it dreamt up these crazy images. And that is my <laughs> fact, Paul. Does, has, right. Google, has Google now been able to dream up or have nightmares of crazy images. Right. Uh, well, we've come to the end of that, and I still don't really understand it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, a cod version of this is Google is very advanced, mm-hmm. and its sort of networking is based on sort of how a real brain works. That's my understanding, yes. Okay. And so they start saying, tell us which of these pictures has a cat in it sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it would get some of them right and some of them wrong, so it had a better idea of what a cat is. Yes. And then they and then they said, here is a blank image. Or when you say white noise, do you mean like the sort of like an untuned television, like all yes. the sort of dots? Right. Yes. Okay. So it sort of said, look at this. There's a cat here somewhere, and because it couldn't do it, it started kind of 
going a bit hal from 2001 <laughs> just sort of yes <laughs> reading its memory banks for pictures of cats and sort of smashing them into this weird sort of empty picture yes and then it started to create its create own cats, cats that have never sort of really existed from its own memories of cats yes okay this is oddly terrifying <laughs> <laughs> and also i think probably true I think mm. um, I have like like you. I have no idea how artificial intelligence works or how Google works, and probably the less I know about it, the the happier I am. We're sort of two steps away from Skynet. Exactly. I'm pretty sure <laughs> Google is going to own us all one day. Yeah, so probably. When we're um, wearing our grey pants suits in the year 2040. Um, <laughs> Even then, by that point, it'll still get me confused with Paul Anthony Jones, who writes zombie fiction in Florida. <laughs> People will be looking for me and it will be suggesting him still to that day. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, so I, I kind of don't really understand it, but that does kind of all make sense, I mm. guess, that it would sort of try to do that. This is the problem because I don't understand the technology, and I don't think you do either. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of can't interrogate it too much because I don't know if you'd made this up. There's probably something in there that would make it impossible or something, and mm. I, I'm not versed enough in this to kind of see what it is or what it isn't. So I've kind of just got to have a bit of a hunch, and my hunch is yes, this sounds true. I guess yeah. So I, I, yeah, I'll go with that. I'll go with my gut. I'll just say that this is true. Final answer. Yeah. This is true. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's it's, a bit scary in a weird kind is, of way. It's actually, I think one of the engineers who was on this, I think he kind of likened it to like a child starting to interpret images in clouds and like use its own imagination, but like in a very rudimentary sort of way that a oh, the machine's right. doing it. But right. I mean, the, the potential for the machine to start the exponentially learning in the future. I mean, it's, mm. it's, I mean who knows where we'll be in the next... 20 to 50 years. Oh, Lord. We'll probably all be cyborgs or something. <laughs> we might be on season five of Yes or BS part one. <laughs> well, that was an interesting start there, Tones. Thank you. A bit, uh, still a bit confusing. Now, a bit of a head scratcher. <laughs> um, yeah, so from the sublime to the ridiculous, uh, as I say, you started with artificial intelligence. I'm going to talk about. Uh, cereal boxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to kind of start with that before we get onto an interesting uh, character from histories. So, some facts about some of the characters that you might see on some of your favorite cereal boxes. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've had a fact about uh, Tony the Tiger before. We have. Um, that was in uh, the first Christmas special. I think it was a while ago now. Right, the uh, Tony the Tiger voice actor. Yeah. Was the voice actor for The Grinch. Yeah, well, he's, he sang the... the uh, ah, You're a mean one, it. Mr. Grinch. Yeah. That was it. Um, so, some other sort of characters from Serial uh, uh, Boxes. You know the rooster on the uh, Cornflakes box? Yes. He's called Cornelius. Ooh. Yeah, he's How... got an actual name. I didn't know that. Yeah, corn, you see. Corn. Oh. Yeah. Um, now, here's the thing. You know the Quaker Oats box? It has a, a picture of someone with a big sort of white hair and a, a big hat. Yes. Yeah, everyone thinks that's William Penn, who was the founder of the Quaker movement. And it isn't. Mm. It's just a picture of just a bloke wearing Quaker clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought it was like an actual a Quaker. 
I didn't even know it was anyone knew it was William Penn, to be honest. Oh, yeah, I think it's sort of understood that it, that's why they're called Quaker oats. But uh, no, it was just someone who happens to be wearing uh, Quaker clothes. Mm. Um, what do you reckon the, the rabbit on the Nesquik box is called? Ooh, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. He's called Quickie. <laughs> So you can have a quickie in the morning, everyone. <laughs> um, and here's a, here's a one that I'm sure you like: Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't realise they were as old as this. What decade do you reckon they first appeared? Ooh, I would say 30s. Yeah, it was the 30s. But in the 1950s, they added another uh, little sort of elf to the Rice Krispies box. Do you know what he was called? Ooh, I don't know. He was called Pow. Pow. <laughs> yeah. So like, it was like snap, crackle, pop, and pow. Because he was, um, wasn't very short lived then. <laughs> yeah, it didn't last very long. Probably because the big selling point of snap, crackle, and pop is that that's the noise that Rice Krispies make. I don't think they make a pow sound. Anyway, but of all the uh, cereal boxes that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about one. I, I'm hoping that you know what I'm talking about the Scott's Porridge Oats box, which yes. has. A, yes. The one with the bloke swinging the hammer. Yes, it's a shot put, yeah. He's ah, got a, a shot put and a kilt and a white vest. Hmm. A very sort of manly man. Um, now, the official sort of line on this is that that picture is of a Scottish soldier from a, from a Highland regiment, um, and that was drawn in the 1920s. But legend actually has it that it's um, based on um, a very famous Highland gamesman, and it's mm. him that I'm going to talk to you about. Okay, so this is the yes or BS fact, is oh, the life gotcha. of someone called Jay Scott, who is the person on the front <laughs> of the Scott's porridge right. box. I, or, I, already think this, I already think this is BS because you've called <laughs> him Jay Scott. Like, because he's Scottish. Do you think Do you think I just walked into my kitchen this morning and went, I've got a record later on. Oh, there's a porridge box. I'll do something about him. I think this is exactly what's happened. But do go on. Do go on. So, um, anyway, G. Scott was born in Asia sometime around about 1930. Um, and he grew up on Inchmurrin, which is an island um, actually in Loch Lomond, which meant that he had to row across the lock to go to school every day. Mm. So as a result, he became incredibly strong at a young age and uh, a very good sort of outdoorsman. Um, his family ran a farm and, uh, and a forest and all sorts. So he just became very, very fit and healthy to the point where um, he was six foot two tall and he had a 12 inch difference between his chest measurement and his waist. <laughs> That's I don't know where you're going when you said 12 inch. <laughs> Don't make any kilt jokes quite <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so if you imagine a sort of triangular man, he, he was uh, his physique was kind of quite impressive. So as a result of this, he became quite a successful Highland Games competitor. And the Highland Games are sort of held at lots and lots of different places all across Scotland. Um, in one particular game in the 1950s, he won the 100-yard sprint, the 220 yards, uh, the hop, step and the jump, which is the Highland equivalent of the triple jump. He won the long jump. He won the pole vault. He won seven weightlifting events and he won the high jump. And at the high jump, he beat the Olympic champion. Jeez. So that was all at one Highland Games. Mm. He was uh, he was sort of that successful. He entered the decathlon at a different Highland Games at a different part of Scotland. And he was so far ahead after just eight of the ten events that he didn't bother competing in the final <laughs> two. <laughs> Um, and at another Highland Games, uh, he arrived too late to kind of properly prepare and and get ready to compete in the high jump. 
So he just sort of turned up, realised that he was late, ran at the high jump, still wearing a kilt, a coat, and his normal shoes, and he still won. <laughs> so, yes, he was incredibly athletic. So this brought him to sort of global attention uh, in the 1960s. So uh, he toured around North America and Canada. He also became, apparently, the first person ever to toss a caber in the Bahamas which is not a euphemism, it's actually something that he did. Uh, and this all brought him to the attention of Hollywood actress Jane Mansfield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's taken some, <laughs> taken some left turns, this, this story. Um, and she sort of set her sights on him and, and thought that he was very attractive, as you would. Uh, so she invited him to her home in Hollywood, uh, in uh, presumably some sort of attempt to kind of seduce him, but he got so. He, he got, you, is this just a new novel you're writing? <laughs> this is the other dream I had last night. Uh, but he got so annoyed by her lap dogs that uh, when he <laughs> he asked for them to be removed from the room, and she became so angry that that he didn't like her dogs that she called her security in, who escorted him off the premises and then threw him in a swimming pool. What? <laughs> Why would they throw him in the pool? Like, if they just wanted him gone? <laughs> I don't know. I thought he was a massive. Like, couldn't he have fought off the security guards? Well, I don't know. I don't know how many security guards Jane Mansfield had in the 60s. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, after that, uh, he returned home. And uh, unfortunately, he had a, a really bad accident on his on his farm and sort of retired and stepped kind of into the background. He never competed anymore. But his wife uh, kind of at this point stepped forward. And she, she had been a... a um, actress in her youth and then a drama teacher um, and she was also one of Sue <laughs> just when this story can't take any more left turns she was also one of Susan Boyle's first singing teachers <laughs> really uh, so yeah there you go there's the story of Jay Scott um, the supremely talented Highland Games person who is now on the uh, box of Scott's Porridge right this is a funny one. Mm. Where, what year were Scott's Porridge Oats first? Um, it's a very old company that was founded in the 1880s. Mm. And it, it moved from the Highlands down to Edinburgh. I think it's still made in Edinburgh, actually. Was it just kind of pure chance that their mascot was also called Scott? Yes. So yeah, it's... it's just a coincidence. It was founded by the Scott Brothers in mm. the 1880s um, and it's just just a coincidence that this Highland Gamesman's surname happened to be Scott as well which is probably part of the reason why people presume that, that this is actually him who's on the box um, mm. as I say the, the sort of technical kind of truth is that it's actually a, an old picture of a Scots soldier who happened to compete in, in the Highland Games but the fact that it looks more like this J. Scott bloke and ha- he happens to be called Scott mm. makes it. We've got this sort of legendary figure instead. So do you know who the soldier was? No, he's not named. He's not named. Mm. So it was the actress. Was it Jane? Jane Mansfield. Yeah, big Jane Hollywood Mansfield. starlet in the in the 50s and 60s. So she was she was just kind of reading the newspaper one day and she read about this guy in the Bahamas. He was happened to be visiting the Bahamas and he was throwing cabers about. He, so he you visited... Know what? He toured all across America America and Canada. He didn't just turn up to the Bahamas once, toss the cable and then fly back to Scotland. (laughs) See, I'm trying to get my head around his chronology. Right. But he didn't like the lapdogs. She threw them out. He came Mm -hmm. back, had an accident on his farm. Yeah, and and kind of stepped into retirement. And then he didn't become Susan Boyle's teacher. (laughs) No. No, he was very athletic, but it was his wife who who was a singer and an actress. (laughs) So, mm, you know, it's. I think I'm. I'm leaning towards true on this mm-hmm. one. 
I'm, instead of going for your facial expression, I'm going for tone of voice this time. Like I'm seeing, <laughs> I'm seeing if this makes any difference to the. Oh, they're all random guesses. I don't know anything on this this podcast. You're, you're, anyway. you're just trying to, you're just trying to legitimise what is still a blind stab in the dark. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I'm going to say this is true. Does it sound plausible? It does actually. It sounds like a very 1960s thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know actresses at the time. They like I can see them living up in the Hollywood Hills, with <laughs> in their mansions and lap dogs. <laughs> But yeah, I'm going to say this is true. Okay. So you think the guy on the Scots porridge jorts was a remarkable Highland gamesman who was once thrown in Jane Mansfield's swimming pool? <laughs> yes. And whose wife taught Susan Boyle how to sing? <laughs> yes. So is that your final answer? It is. That story is true. Ah, it had like a ring of truth about it somehow. Yeah. Um, it's like I think it's I was I might have said no until you threw Susan Boyle in <laughs> in the swimming pool. <laughs> I was like, why would that be in there? Like, if it mm. was just if if you were lying, you would have gone a little bit more ex- <laughs> a little bit more extravagant than Susan Boyle. <laughs> so if I was lying, it would have been Susan Boyle who was in the swimming pool. No, that's all completely true. Yeah, he was like an incredible athlete. And here's me thinking that it was modelled after me. I think you were alone in that one. (laughs) Cue the music. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, well done me there. Nice. So it's one all now, I think, Paul. And from porridge oats to octopuses. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's like your shopping list. (laughs) Actually, there's a quick language question for you, Paul. What's the correct plural for octopus? Oh, you're going to pull me into this rat's nest, are you? <laughs> is it that? Um, is it controversial? Uh, every time I try and even broach this on Twitter or on the blog, the number of like comments and emails that I get from from either people like saying "Don't be so stupid," of course people don't say this to like "No, actually, you're wrong, completely wrong," and all this sort of oh. stuff. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who have a lot of very strong opinions about this. The correct answer to this is use whatever bloody plural you want to use. <laughs> It's like the the it's perfectly fine to say octopuses because it's an English word now. If you want to be really pedantic and and still class it as like a classical word, then you've got to remember that it's Greek, not Latin. So the Latin plural of a of a word ending in us would be octopi. Like the plural of terminus is supposed to be termini, but it's not Latin. It's Greek. So the technically the plural is octopodes. <laughs> but I wasn't no one ex- uses that. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Oct- What's weird is that yeah, is that everyone always says no one ever uses octopodes and I thought I wonder if people ever have and I searched it once and you find it in like um Victorian newspaper articles and things. Yeah. I can remember stumbling across a, a story about an octopus that escaped from an aquarium in like Scunthorpe or something in like 1840. And this local newspaper report kept on calling them octopodes. And it's because people in the 19th century knew like classical Latin and Greek. Mm. So they they knew that that was the correct plural. But obviously people kind of aren't as well versed like that anymore. So yeah. um, it's Fasc- fascinating fact hijack from Paul there. Yeah, sorry. I've like, <laughs> come, just, come and just, you, this. You just take over this one. Huh? 
<laughs> so anyway, my fact is that the correct plural of octopus <laughs> is octopodes. Cue the music again, everyone. But um, no, I, yeah, anyway. Yeah, see, anyway. Actually, octopodes sounds like a, like a failed Greek philosopher, like he didn't do so well. Like, <laughs> so can, can I come too? He's like, no, I'll bugger off octopodes with your ideas. Octopodes also sounds like, uh, it could be like a really lovely island group. Just next to the, south of the dodecanese is the octopodes. And <laughs> they've got really, really good feta and retina. <laughs> I'm so way off by facts now. It's like, yeah, yeah. What are you going to pull us back to? Yeah, octopuses. We are starting with octopuses, right? Um, essentially, my fact is that there's been some research that shows octopuses have mm. a level of consciousness and sentience now. <laughs> are all of your facts going to be about like, like high level like consciousness <laughs> in other things only this one with very, <laughs> very different facts today paul yeah but before okay. i before i get into that um some facts on some octopuses uh, we right. know that they're very intelligent they actually have a lot of neurons in their legs so it's basically neurons transmit information from the brain to nerve cells so obviously all of ours are in the brain but loads of their neurons are in the legs so you could say that their brains are in their legs as well as a central core that's in their heads oh, as right. well. Oh, um, right. Actually, there's another question for you. Are they arms or legs? People say that octopus means like eight armed, um, but it doesn't. It means eight feet. Mm. It, it comes from the same root as like podium and pedometer and things. Mm. Um, so yeah, technically they have eight eight feet. It's it's not it's not legs or arms. It's it's feet. Are you uh, going to give me anything today? That's like, like an answer I've, <laughs> answer I've heard before. <laughs> like, not, well, you know, they're not either of those. They're actually feet. <laughs> Linguistically, anyway, they're, they're feet. So, they've got eight feet. We know they're intelligent. Yes. Um, this is actually based on... There was a, there's a scuba diver called Peter Godfrey Smith, and he mm. wrote a book in 2016 called Other Minds, and it was from his observations of octopuses that kind of kick-started this whole research into consciousness in octopuses. Right. Um, so this is all true so far, but okay. the experiment I'm going to get onto later, that's where the SOBS comes in. You mentioned before, like from the 1800s, of an octopus escaping from its tank in an aquarium. Mm. There's loads of stories about octopuses escaping from their tanks. Uh, there's stories of them squirting water at lights to turn them off. Um, oh, le wow. Leaving one tank to go to another tank to eat the fish in that tank. Um, <laughs> in one Australian aquarium, one just escaped and went back into the ocean. Good on it. Yeah, you go, you go octopus. And then, How are they that smart? That's insane. I think there were a few theories why octopuses became so smart. It was because most of other sea creatures, like the octopus, have hard shells to protect them and mm -hmm. like claws or something to protect them as mm. well. But because the octopus had a very soft body, they were easy mm. prey for other sea creatures. So I think one of the working theories is that they had to evolve like hyper-intelligence to find other ways to fight their prey, other ways to hide. Right, right. Spitting water at people as well, ink. So they've had to develop a right. whole other set of intelligence. Uh, that's interesting. So it's almost like the sort of brain versus brawn thing. Exactly. I suppose you could compare it to like humans and gorillas or chimps. Like a gorilla or a chimp is many times stronger than the average human. But when we diverged, our intelligence started to skyrocket, but we became right. physically weaker. But the chimps and gorillas, they're obviously hitting the gym every day still. <laughs> the jungle gym. <laughs> <laughs> but this is where we kind of get on to the experiment part of it. 
So up until right. now, everything's been true. We know they're very intelligent. Mm-hmm. So from this point on, it's yes or BS. In 2015, there was an experiment done on five sand octopuses. And this was at the University of New South Wales in Sydney in Australia. They ran these experiments over the course of two years. And actually, you know, octopuses don't live that long at all. They only live about five years. That's interesting because you kind of tend to think of ocean creatures as being kind of quite long lived, especially larger ones like that shark that's like 500 years old now. Oh, God, I've seen those pictures. He looks 500 years old. <laughs> <laughs> He's had a rough paper around. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, I wouldn't have said it was as short as sort of four or five years, though. This is my personal theory. I think this is why octopuses haven't taken over the world is because. Oh, here we go. <laughs> it's because they have such short lives. If they lived longer, I think they'd be. They'd There'd be octopus cities all over the ocean floor. (laughs) That's a completely sensible theory to have, yes. But anyway, back to the experiment. So this is how they found out that these octopuses were gathering sentience, as it were. Right. So the first experiments they ran on them were a series of assault courses with traps and... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Obviously not like land. Like the Krypton factor. <laughs> Obviously they were in the fish tanks when they okay. did this. And so one example of these, there were two boxes and there was food at the end of the other box. Um, as soon as the octopus went in the first box, it would shut and there was no way to get out other than kind of twisting a cap to unscrew it at the other end. Right. And so after a, a short while, the other octopuses swimming around managed to figure this out. And they rescued the octopus and they all got the food. So they were showing... Oh, right. So the, so the one that was in the box didn't work it out. No. Well, it was trapped in the box. He couldn't move anywhere. Oh, I thought, I thought you meant like the way out of the box was, to, was for it to unscrew its way out. It, uh, it was, but they had to be unscrewed from the outside. Ah, right. So okay. the one inside, okay. he was just kind of banging on the inside of this Perspex box. He said, hey, come on, lads. <laughs> <laughs> they, that was evidence of like their inquisitive nature because octopuses tend to just grab anything that they can find and start to investigate it and see what it does. Right. So the next time this happened, it was the same sort of setup, but the octopuses remembered what happened the first time. So two mm-hmm. of them stayed at the front of the box and held up the door while a third one went in, grabbed the food and then swam back out. So All right. when he triggered the mechanism to close the box, nothing happened because the other octopuses were kind of holding the door open, as it were. Okay. And they also started to see different personalities in the octopuses. Like there was one who was like the brave one and he would, he was always the one who was going into the box. And right. there's like, there was quite a cowardly one who would just sit in the corner, wouldn't really, wouldn't really engage with them. That'd be me. <laughs> the, the Paul of the octopus kingdom. <laughs> like, come on, Paul, my friend's trapped in a box. Oh, I'm, su- I'm sure he'll be fine. I'm sat there going, you know, technically we're octopodes. <laughs> But uh, during the course of the this two years, one of them actually died while they were in the tank, and the others buried it in the sand, like they were like shoving sand over it. And it it oh. almost it almost looked like they were mourning the octopus, and they were placing small rocks and different bits and pieces on top, as if they mm-hmm. were trying to as if they were trying to protect that body from any predators that might try and eat it, maybe. Okay. But again, these are just what they suspected were happening. Yeah, I'm starting to think now, if this is true, I wonder how much of this is sort of people projecting their ideas on what the octopus... Like, the octopus probably just doing like, oh, don't go over there because there's something dead over there. <laughs> and the, and the, the researchers are going, oh, look at him mourning the other octopus. Like, no, it's just because <laughs> just we don't want to go over there anymore. But yeah, so that was basically, they concluded that 
the octopuses had personalities, that they could learn from each other, that they made decisions and knew what consequences they would have. And from that basis, they said, these octopuses, they are conscious. And that is my fact, Paul. <sighs> okay. Um, this is interesting. It sounds very plausible. Uh, yeah, octopuses are very... Uh, sorry, octopodes are, uh, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> are very intelligent. Um, is it burgeoning on... It, no, is it sentience or, or consciousness? It's the border between the two. It's kind of because there's not really one clear definition of this is what a conscious animal is. Right, right. And I think so it's part... like it's not sort of like self-awareness, like, oh, my word, we're, we're not quite humans, but we're better <laughs> than other mollusks. Or no. <laughs> <laughs> the definition was they were saying bordering on sentience because they could evidence feelings, beliefs and desires. Right, okay. Whereas okay. other animals would act on just instinct alone. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, this does sound very plausible. But again, would you drop two facts along these lines into the same episode? Or would you try and bamboozle me with things? I could see this being completely true. But I also think, yeah, you might have, you might have made this up. I, I, all I can go on is that I know that octopuses are very intelligent. But I don't know. Still, what what jumped out as if it was a lie? What would be the biggest lie that I've thrown in there? Don't, I don't know. There's just something about the whole thing's just sort of sticking with me a little bit. The experiment, keeping the lid off the box, and then what was the other one? The other experiment, um, where they two octopuses held open the door of the, of yeah, the that, door yes. and the third one went in. Right. I could see this being true, but I'm going to I'm going to go the opposite way. I'm going to say this is BS. I think you mm. I think it's very cleverly crafted, but I, and I think you could have made it up. I wouldn't be surprised if that's wrong, but I'm going to say this is BS. Is that your final answer? Yes. This experiment never happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just had a feeling, especially after the first one, I can just like see you making something like this up uh, yeah that the first part is true so there have been the people have theorized they might be conscious or sentient right. but there's right. no there's no way to prove that the octopus knows it's an octopus it's very difficult to have hard evidence to say yes right it knows right. exactly what it's doing i think the only thing that i can ever remember about sort of psychology and of animals and things is whether they recognize that a reflection is a reflection because you know like puppies will bark at their own reflection thinking it's another dog and stuff so i've heard of experiments like that but the th idea of like two octopuses holding open the door on a trap <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe not yeah actually yeah. In, in reality oct octopodes i was it octopodes 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 they're actually very solitary usually so mm. they they they'll they've been known to eat each other as well. Oh, so oh wow, oh they're not that smart then. <laughs> so there's no teamwork going on there. <laughs> True enough. Yeah, oh, very cleverly crafted, but uh, yeah, there was just something about that was just not quite striking me correctly there. Uh, nearly had you though. Yeah, but let's. Oh, it's two one now then to you, Paul. Mm, Okay. Let, let's right. I've got to maintain this lead. Yeah. Mm. Well, that was a good fact there, Tones, even though uh, it wasn't true. Well, the, the first part was about the intelligent octopuses. Less so about them holding a, a burial for one of, the, <laughs> one of their deceased friends. Anyway, um, but again, we're changing subjects uh, pretty sharply here. 
we're going to uh, a film that is consistently voted kind of one of the best Christmas films, even though I don't think it's a Christmas film. No, mm. it's not um, Up at Christmas Carol. <laughs> uh, do you know what it might be? Oh, is this is this the Die Hard argument? <laughs> yeah, it's Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you class it as a Christmas film? Um, I think any film you watch at Christmas, you can associate it with Christmas. I've, I think I've seen it once and I thought it was all right. That's th- a good film. Yeah, I just don't think it's a holiday film. But yes, um, now, you, yes, you've only seen it once, but you'll know that it's Bruce Willis who's in it and he plays um, a very iconic character of mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. John McLean. But do you know who was initially going to take the lead in Die Hard? I don't. This is my fact. It was Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> Right, okay. So, okay. <laughs> before we get onto that, uh, some facts about Die Hard. It was released in 1988. Well, it holds up pretty well. Yeah, 1988. It was uh, Alan Rickman's first film. And really? You know, the, yeah. His it, first it was obviously, film. He was a very famous stage actor and he'd been on TV and things in, in Britain, but it was his first uh, major film role. I yeah. can't be. I just, I just picture Alan Rickman, like, he's so ubiquitous on screen. It's like, yeah. No, it was his yeah. first sort of uh, film role, yeah. yeah. Um, it, in It was based on a book. Really? Yeah, the book's called Nothing Lasts Forever, and it was written by an author called Roderick Thorpe in, uh, in 1979. But yeah, it's, uh, it's based on a book. And the book, uh, in the book, the events of the um, film take place over three days. But the director of Die Hard, uh, John McTiernan, he changed it all so they all took place over one night after he saw A Midsummer Night's Dream. Really? Yeah, which is sort of everything takes place over one night, obviously, in that. And uh, and that's what gave him the idea to sort of truncate the story into one kind of, um, almost in real time, it kind of all takes place in, in, in one night. Um, Bruce Willis's vest. Uh, <laughs> if you really wanted to go and see it, it's now in the Smithsonian. I was going to say your back bedroom there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bought it on eBay. <laughs> um, yeah, and the Nakatomi Plaza building, which is where it where it all takes place, is actually uh, the building that they used is now the 20th Century Fox headquarters, which was in the middle of being built yeah. at the time. And uh, 20th Century Fox charged themselves rent. They put it all through the books. Oh, that'd be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, made it all legitimate. But yes, my fact is... Um, that the role of John McLean was originally going to go to <laughs> noted 1950s right. and 60s crooner Frank Sinatra. How First off, how old was Frank Sinatra in 1988? <laughs> he was 73. <laughs> why would they even... Why was yeah. he even brought yeah. to this? Okay. <laughs> okay, so here's the story. Uh, now, you'll remember that I said that it was based on a book by Roderick Thorpe. And he wrote this book. This this actually is true as well. He wrote uh, the book after he had a dream, after he'd watched The Towering Inferno. So he wrote the book based on that. But he incorporated into it a character called Joe Leland. Not John McLean. It was eventually changed for the film. But he incorporated this character called Joe uh, Leland into it, who had been the hero of a book that he'd written um, 13 years earlier called The Detective. That was published in 1966. So he sort of recycled one of his old characters. The problem with that was uh, that that film had been made into... Uh, that, that book had been made into a film in 1968 and the mm. character then had been played by Frank Sinatra, okay? Um, so 
the film rights for the sequel get bought up and they're legally obliged to cast Frank Sinatra again, despite the fact of him being 73 years old. So this sort of puts the mockers on what they want to do with the film and sort of make it quite a sort of action-packed kind of thing. Luckily... Uh, Frank Sinatra turned it down. He was obviously seven. Luckily, not particularly interested in being an action hero, I guess. But it then sort of bounced all over Hollywood and was kind of offered to everyone except Bruce Willis. The next person it was offered to is Arnold Schwarzenegger. So it's probably the mm. first time in history that a role has been offered to Frank Sinatra and then to Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> well, I'm sure that happened. That... Wasn't that Terminator, the original one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And from here to eternity as well. Uh, yeah, I, I can't see that uh, that ever happened again. But he turned it down. Um, Clint Eastwood at one point owned the film rights and was going to cast himself, but he eventually said no one passed over. Um, and it kind of went to pretty much everyone who was a big star at the time until they landed with Bruce Willis, who at the time was known for being in Moonlight and that, uh, that comedy series with Sybil Shepard. So he wasn't the sort of big action star. So he was a bit of a sort of untried, an untried commodity in that sense. Um, but yeah, eventually went with him and he made the role his own. And that's where we kind of ended up with Die Hard and the Die Hard franchise as it is. But this was originally offered to Frank Sinatra. Right. You've done this three times before, <laughs> I think. You did this. It's, it's all the film role to Frank Sinatra. <laughs> it's all about the rights issue. You you did that apparently. Like in the last season, we had they were going to make Lord of the Rings with the Beatles. <laughs> yes, which was true in the end. Mm-hmm, which that yeah. was a, that was like a contract slash rights issue sort of thing mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. You've you've also mentioned Falco from oh yeah from the Neverending Story. Never Story, but that was a lie. Mm-hmm. That sure. was more about the fact that you could drive his head around. <laughs> That's true. That, that, that was like a contractually obligation to do <laughs> no, that. I don't, I don't think that wasn't that wasn't in Falco's contract that you could drive <laughs> his head off. So this one, I'm obviously immediately just suspicious because Frank Sinatra being 73 years old at the time. But would you have concocted that nonsense about the books? It feels very like a very bland reason the thing is the fact the fact itself it's like oh that's very exciting very interesting but the backup build up to it it's like oh I suppose things see where mm-hmm. but have were... I done that deliberately I don't I don't think you have <laughs> I think I'm I told, this tone of voice thing's really working out for me <laughs> we're going to record them all remotely from now on <laughs> you know it's there's just something so bland about the build up to it <laughs> <laughs> that I'm <laughs> going to have to say that I think this is true. <laughs> okay. I think Frank Sinatra. No. No. <laughs> you've, you've stopped yourself mid sentence because you just had to say I think Frank Sinatra was going to be John McLean. <laughs> because that's why, even if it wasn't the contract, why would they even offer it to him? Because he's obviously <laughs> going to say no. He's seventy three. They could. They couldn't give the role to him if. Right, I've changed it, turned it around. I'm going to say this is BS. Okay, the final answer? Yes. <laughs> you Frank's don't an- believe Frank Sinatra was going to be John McLean? No. Okay, final answer? Yes. That fact is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they offered the role from, uh, to Frank Sinatra. God, is he, uh, even the, 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 the contract? Why? 
<laughs> yeah, no, it, it had to it had to go to Frank Sinatra first because because of how the book had been written. Um, yeah, and it's all that's all true that it's based on a book and that was based on an earlier book and mm. um, it was Frank Sinatra that had played him originally, so they had to they had to say, yeah, you do, do you know Frank? Do you want to do you want to <laughs> play the lead in an action film where you jump through a burning elevator shaft? <laughs> yeah, go for it. What would they have done <laughs> if he said yes? <laughs> I can't imagine it being quite so exciting. Oh, I think it'd be more exciting because he'd be like, "Oh, what the, is he going to make it through this through the film?" You'd <laughs> be saying that like just in the first five minutes while he's just having a normal normal conversation in the lobby. <laughs> is he going to make it? <laughs> Wasn't Frank Sarah like notoriously bad on set? though for his movies I don't know I can imagine that he would have been because he was pretty much kind of in charge of Hollywood for a very long time there's lots of um, not so complimentary stories about him dealing with especially his uh, actress co-stars and things so yeah I wouldn't be surprised if he was a little bit difficult but uh, there's no denying his sort of star power mm. I'm sure I heard one story that like he, w- he felt he wasn't being paid attention to so he, j- he just wet his pants <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, you're, which is a, you're mixing that up with your first day at school. <laughs> the first day of work as well. You know. <laughs> I get very nervous, you know, Paul. <laughs> nerves has got nothing to do with it. It's all ego. It's like Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> so well done, Paul. That was a mm. uh, good fight. I'm looking for new films to watch during the lockdown so I think I might just go and watch that tonight with a pizza you've just mm. given me you've given me an idea there so I'll go oh, and see, do that uh, you've just given me the idea I have a pizza <laughs> <laughs> we're so easily influenced by anything <laughs> but in keeping with this episode's theme we're taking yet another left turn oh god we're in, the, there's no brakes on the yes or BS train people <laughs> we're just we're just flying down uh. this uncontrollable track because we're going to outer space outer space (laughs) (laughs) oh no right okay now now we've been to outer space a couple of times have we not 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 personally but (laughs) as part of the podcast and it was you kind of inspired this fact indirectly paul because Mm -hmm. uh, one of a very popular tweets on Haggard Hawks, it's that phenomenon where we see faces in inanimate objects. Oh, it's called pareidolia, I think. Yeah, so if you look at a a car's headlights and a funny grill on the front, you'll think it looks like a smiling face or something. Yes, yeah. But it's along those lines, but it's going into space for this one. Okay. And I thought before we go into far outer space, we'd sit a little closer to home. Because we had a fact about the moon a while back, I kind of want to rescue it a bit by putting a, another fact in so we oh, don't Lord. sound as stupid as we, did, we used to. Yeah, so did, okay. Did you know that the moon's actually moving away at about four centimetres a year? Oh, I've heard this, the, the mm. moon's getting further away. I don't know why or how or how we know that. <laughs> it's <laughs> Someone's just watching it really closely. <laughs> And it's something. It's always something to do with gravity and the like, but it's drifting very slowly away. Gravity the ast- and the like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said you wanted to rescue our knowledge of the moon. And apparently the moon slows down the Earth's rotation. I don't really? know by how much, but I imagine if the moon wasn't there, we'd be spinning like a waltzer. We'd all be... <laughs> Having to hold on to something. <laughs> well, we're already going at like hundreds of miles an hour or something, are we? Isn't it 60,000 miles or something? Like I, we're absolutely... I don't know. 
Like, isn't it like if the Earth just stopped spinning, we'd all just evaporate or something? That's how it works, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we keep straining the subjects we know nothing about? I've literally said, I'm going to rescue this fact and then just dug a deeper hole. To sh- <laughs> See, just- I can just imagine your brother, who is a scientist, listening to this. And as soon as you go, if the Earth stops turning, we all evaporate. And it just, it'll be head in the hands. <laughs> But I want to kind of talk about, before we go even further into space as well, about, uh, don't worry, it's going somewhere. Right. You know that famous picture of the face on Mars? Oh, yes. The sort of, it it looks like a sort of three volcanic craters, but it looks like a face or something. Yes. So it was in 1976, uh, the Viking 1 satellite took pictures of Mars and... It looked, it really does look a lot like a face. So people had all these theories that, oh, it's the remnants of an ancient civilization. Um, But this is the example of that Haggard Hawk suite I was talking about before. Yeah, Paradoria, yeah. We see things because we want to see them or Mm. because we make it up. But when we had much more high definition pictures taken, they look nothing like faces. They're just lumpy mounds and hills. Mm, Yeah, you do surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) So that was kind of where I was going with this. Okay. So as yet, we still have no evidence of aliens on Mars or otherwise. Mm. But did you know that? This is the yes or BS fact, by the way. Mm -hmm. The Eye of Sauron is watching us from outer space. Well, we've finally reached the point where you've cracked, and <laughs> I think we should just end this right now. <laughs> no, no, it's a thing. This, this is a thing. Okay. It's, it's a star system about 235 light years away from Earth. It's known as HR4796, and it's a binary star, which is two stars that orbit around each other. So they have a common center of mass in between them, and they both orbit around it. Like two people sort of squaring each other up. Yes. Right. So, so I'm doing really well so far. I've got to think, I think this is all correct. But yeah, this sounds like it could be off the Open University. But the thing with this star system, it's, it's an absolute baby in terms of the galaxy because it's only about 8 million years old. Whereas oh, a, mere, our, a mere snip. Whereas our sun is about 4.6 billion years old. Right. And the uni- I think the universe in general, is it 14 billion? Do you think I know that off the top of my head? <laughs> But the reason we've called this is this star system is called the Eye of Sauron is because it looks like there's a giant dust cloud that kind of covers across this entire system. And when you look at it through infrared light, the dust glows red and there's Mm -hmm. a kind of bright center, which is the obviously the pupil of the Eye of Sauron. Mm -hmm. And this massive dust cloud makes it look like the whole system is on fire when you look at it through an infrared light. Mm-hmm. So the size of this system, so the size of this enormous dust cloud, so the eye itself, is about 70 AU across, which is an astronomical unit, which is the right. distance from the Earth to the Sun. Okay. So 70 AU would put this at 11,250,000,000 kilometers across, which is this giant eye of Sauron that looks like it's on fire. Right. And that is my fact, Paul. Have we... <laughs> Have we observed this phenomenon and attached a meaning to it and said, this looks like something else? <laughs> okay. Sort of shoehorned this into a <laughs> pareidolia discussion. Right. <laughs> yes, I so... said it was inspired by it. I didn't say it was exactly like it. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. When you say the Eye of Sauron, do you mean like 
from that like it looks like the one in the films of the lord of the rings yes it looks like the one in the films right okay so it must have been named quite recently then what what i mean is this wasn't named in the 70s and it was based on the description in the book yes um i don't know when it was discovered it may have been discovered earlier because it has its scientific name of hr 4796 Right, so we might have known about it for a long time, but it's only recently, maybe since the films have come out, that people have started calling it this. Yes. Right. Okay, so there's two stars opposite each other with Mm -hmm. this sort of gap in the middle with presumably nothing in it so that it looks like this big black space like Mm -hmm. the Eye of Sauron looks. Yes. And there's a dust cloud in front of it. That runs across the entire star system almost. Which sort of hazes it all up and makes it look like flames. Yes. Okay. And Mm -hmm. it's massively vast across as well. Yes. Right. I think this is true. I think this is very plausible. Um, I can imagine that a binary star system would sort of look a bit like this, I guess. The only thing that's got me questioning it is the fact that you dressed this up as a discussion about pareidolia and (laughs) took us to the moon and Mars before going millions of light years elsewhere um and the fact that you sort of shoehorned in that there's a dust cloud in the way that sort of makes it look even better or something but i yeah i think this is still true i yeah i think this is true final answer yes this is true yes (laughs) (laughs) do you want to know the thinking behind this one Come on, then. I've started watching The Expanse, which is a really good sci-fi show. I was so, like, is it in that um, show? No, it's not in that show. It's basically, that inspired me to look for space facts. And yes. then off I went. Oh, dear. And then, I, to be honest, I think a lot of my efforts went into the octopus fact. Like, <laughs> God, that seems months ago now. <laughs> So just to, this is giving the, the listeners an idea of the lockdown mentality of me right now. I'm just yes. like... This, this episode is just making the lockdown seem that much longer. <laughs> it'll, be over by, it'll be over by the time we finish this one. Humanity will be over by the time we go outside. <laughs> Right, well, last fact. Um, we're taking another uh, pretty sharp left turn here. We're going to talk. <laughs> I think we t- crashed hours ago, Paul. We've not, there's no turns anymore. We're in a yeah. ditch. Uh, we're going to talk about a dolphin that became a celebrity. Uh, um, that's okay. Yeah. But before we get on to that, um, do you know what a pelorus is? I have no idea. Yeah, I say that because I know you like your ancient history and things, and Pelorus mm. was the name of Hannibal's pilot on his... Um... Oh, I, di- I didn't know he had a plane. <laughs> I think the lockdown ended about an hour ago, didn't it? <laughs> Uh, well, his navigator then, shall we say. Uh, um, yeah, in like 200 BC or whenever Hannibal was knocking about, uh, his pilot was called Pelorus. And based on that, there is a piece of maritime equipment called a Pelorus, which is also known as a dumb compass, which I think would be uh, your name if you ever joined a ship's crew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a dumb compass works by... Uh, whereas a magnetic compass always points north, and, and so you kind of work out where you are based on that. A dumb compass or a Pelorus, you point at a landmark, and use that to take sort of relative bearings. So it doesn't have a sort of directional thing. You just use it to take bearings based on sort of something that's in your periphery, if that makes sense. So based on this, I'm going to tell you about a dolphin known as Pelorus Jack. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I'm going to take you to 19th century New Zealand. Not literally, with just you know, in, your, <laughs> in your mind's eye. So there is a um, between North and South Island in New Zealand is the Cook Strait, which is that stretch of water between the two. And one of the sort of inlets of that is called French Pass which is a, a really sort of treacherous uh, area where there's lots of wrecks and lots of reefs and lots of kind of shallow shallow rocks underneath the water and all sorts. And it's very difficult to navigate through it, but navigate it, many boats have to do. And in 1888, a schooner from uh, Boston... <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just guessed where this is going, and it's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> but go on. In, Keep going. In 1888, a schooner from boston uh, which is called the brindle if you really wanted to know uh, was trying to navigate through this channel when up popped a riss a rissles dolphin which is a sort of a, a large sort of species of dolphin more closely related to to pilot whales than it is to sort of other species of dolphin but uh, this single dolphin pops up and it sort of flanks the ship and sort of leads it through the safest passage through this... Um, yeah, this, this is where I thought this was going to go. <laughs> through this strait. So the crew, according to legend, the crew initially tried to shoot at it, presumably trying to <laughs> like, capture it and that's, maybe eat it or something. I don't that's know. the 19th century. Yeah. Um, and the, the captain's wife talked them out of shooting at it. And it was a good decision because it obviously led it through the, the waters. And so they were like, oh, the dolphin got us through safely. Uh, isn't this dolphin amazing? Let's let's call him Polaris Jack because he works, you know, to guide us through the safest part of of this strait. So this continued to happen for the next twenty four years. Did he guide every single ship? Pretty much. Yeah. No. And he became sort of like a little local celebrity that Polaris Jack, if you're in this part of New Zealand, hang around at the mouth of the bay until this dolphin turns up and follow the dolphin through this channel. And he's called, you know, Polaris Jack. He's, you know, very friendly. Give him a little wave as you go. He's uh, very <laughs> famous. Um, so this went on um, for the next 24 years, as I say, almost uninterrupted apart from in 1904 when um, a passenger vessel called the SS Penguin, uh, which was, <laughs> which, was <laughs> which was a boat I made up. I mean, this, uh, is, which this was, is a lie. <laughs> which was a, a passenger steamer that sort of island hopped around uh, around the sort of islands off the off the coast of New Zealand. Um, someone on board that spotted this dolphin in the water, didn't realise its importance, and again shot at it. So the crew on board the SS Penguin jumped on top of this guy and went, no, no, this is Polaris Jack. And for the next couple of weeks, Polaris Jack disappeared and didn't help oh. any vessel. <laughs> Eventually he sort of reappeared though and started helping them all. But if he saw the SS Penguin... No, he, he's not going anywhere near that. So, <laughs> he so continued, continued to help all the other ships, but not the SS Penguin. Right, first question. Oh, this, uh, no, <laughs> the, we're, we've still got to ratchet up the madness. Oh, um, God. So, yes, for, for as I say, for 24 years, um, Polaris Jack would help all these ships, apart from the SS Penguin. Um, and then in 1912, he disappeared, presumed either to have, you know, given up, he got a bit bored, or he passed away, sadly. But... A decade later, of course, as happens to everyone who's well-known around about the early 1900s, he was immortalised in song. Oh, Jesus. 
So a song called Every Polaris Jack. Every episode, there's a song. <laughs> a song called Polaris Jack. So it did the rounds. It was written in 1921. Um, and it was a sort of piano-based parlor song, maybe sort of music hall song. So would you like to hear some of the lyrics? Oh, I sure uh, don't. But I'm sure you're going to tell me. <clears throat> I don't know the tune, alas, but uh, here we go. Uh. A famous fish there used to be... <laughs> called Polaris Jack. He'd always swim far out to sea when a ship came back. <laughs> about, about her bow, he'd dive and play and keep with her right to the bay and all aboard would cheer and say, there's Polaris Jack. And <clears throat> this... It's my fact that uh, Rissell's dolphin in the early 1900s and, and late 19th century would lead vessels through French Pass in the Cook Straits in New Zealand, and he became so well known that someone wrote a song about him. I mean, we talk about doing lots of Victorian eccentric facts and I do history facts, but you and your songs every <laughs> every other week there's some other poem or a song that's ridiculous and i think they've all been true except this one feels bs this feels like a like a children's story you've written like the ss penguin Sp- sprightly jack or whatever he was called polaris P- jack polaris jack yeah so here's a few questions for you so okay. if he if the ss penguin shot at him mm-hmm. and he, he said oh, i don't like the ss penguin Mm-hmm. Why didn't he just avoid the first ship? Because the first ship shot at him as well. Surely he'd be like, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not helping these guys out." Uh, no, the, I think the first ship was going to shoot at him, but uh, the captain's wife talked the crew out of it. Oh, okay. so the only ship that actually shot at him was the SS Penguin. I'm, I'm said that in a way as if it was the most logical thing to happen. As like, oh, all oh, right, that would oh, happen. Yeah. Now it all makes perfect <laughs> sense. It all makes sense. <laughs> so you said he guided every ship through this pass. Pretty much, like, yeah. For how how years. how long was the pass? Like, did he have guide one ship and then go back and get the next one? Like, <laughs> it, was, was there ever a, was there ever a queue of ships? What about He's, when a, what about when a fleet wanted to go through? Yeah, he's, he's kind of like a sort of uh, maritime crossing guard. Just sort of like, you wait there, hang on, I'll come back for you in 10 minutes. Right, you come through, come through. Yep, yeah, that's it. This right, you like, park up over there. <laughs> this is like why it would... This is why I feel it's, this has to be BS, like Polaris <laughs> Jack. Because you've literally you found the name of someone Hannibal used to know. And then mm. just like, oh, just give that name to a dolphin. <laughs> because they named mm. a compass after it. Something, something's happened. I don't know. My brain's melted. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got another two weeks of lockdown to go. <laughs> oh, God. Probably longer. <laughs> right. But then again, every time you've done one of these facts, almost, it's, it's almost always true. <sighs> that was a really bad song. Give us the lyrics one more, like, one more time. Oh, it, it's that good? You want to hear it again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. Right. A famous fish there used to be <laughs> called mm-hmm. Polaris Jack. He'd always swim far out to sea when a ship came back. <laughs> Do you need to hear right. anymore? <laughs> no, that's it. I got it now. This is BS. Definitely. You think because I wrote that? I think you wrote that. Because apparently he's not swimming far out to sea, is he? Because it's a very narrow pass, isn't it? He's just sort of popping about in the water. And I'm sure they knew dolphins weren't fish then. Even even colloquially to refer to them as fish, I don't think they would do that. That's what you're basing this on. 
yes. And the fact that it's a terrible song, it's awful. <laughs> well, he used to, it's, it, oh, he used to swim out to sea and back. Who wrote this? You, you, that's who wrote it. BS. Final okay. answer. Okay. You going BS? Yes. Polaris Jack and that song, it's all true. Ah, oh, knew it was going to be true at the end. <laughs> just, I didn't want it to be. So stupid. <laughs> what a terrible song. You know, the thing is, I, I only learned the word Polaris a couple of weeks ago and I was like, that's an amazing word. And then while I was researching that, I spotted these stories about Polaris Jack. And so I, I wrote up all of that story up to like him just helping ships and then the SS Penguin, all of which is completely true. And then I was like, you know, early 1900s, I bet someone wrote a song about it. And I actively went looking for a song. (laughs) That's the worst song I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) I thought it was great. I might record it and put it on Perion. That you're a Stalin, me darling, at uh, Mozart's (laughs) Stalin's funeral was better than that. Oh, yeah, that was true, yeah. (laughs) So 5-1... Oh, this lockdown's never going to end. I know. <laughs> oh, at least it's not 6-0 like the first episode of this season. True, true. You're, you're crumbling apart in this uh, in this season four. I am. I'm actually holding my head in my hands at the minute. Like... <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like your brother listening to you read science facts out. <laughs> well, actually, we'd learned that if the Earth stopped spinning, we'd all evaporate. I, I don't know if we learned that. <laughs> I think we did. Indis- <laughs> an indisputable fact. Well, we learned it by default. <laughs> I, don't think we, I don't think we learned anything from me today. <laughs> we learned loads of me because all mine were true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super Polaris, Polaris Jack. He actually existed, yes. The, the guy on the Quaker Oats box was um, the, the, the husband of Susan Boyle's music teacher. Shall we put it that way? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a better one. And yeah, uh, Frank Sinatra was going to be in Die Hard. Well, we got some fun octopus facts from me. Mm-hmm. And we learned we learned that Google is about to take over the world. I, I kind of wish it had done about an hour ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> and on that note, thanks very much, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the first lockdown episode, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.